Section 27 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. Section 27. Selected Poems by Nicolas Boyou Despayou. 1636 to 1711. The name of Louis the Fourteenth suggests ultra lavishness in life and taste, a time when French society, surfeited with pleasure, demanded a stimulus of continual novelty in current literature. The natural result was prachazite, hyperbole, falsetto sentiment, which ranked the unusual above the natural, clever conceit above careful workmanship. It was tainted with artificiality, and now seems mawkish and superficial. But Boileau changed all that. Perhaps no author, unendowed with genius, has ever so influenced literature. Aside from his work, the man and his life seem essentially commonplace. Nicolas Boileau, who, adding another name to his own, quite a fashion then, was usually called Despayou by his contemporaries, was born in Paris, in the palace court, nearly opposite the royal Saint-Chapelle. He rarely went farther from the city than to the little house of Oitayu, where he spent twenty summers. So he knew his Paris very intimately, and was limited too by knowing only her life and thought. To his repressed youth, guarded by a strict father and a cross servant, for his mother died in his babyhood, is sometimes attributed his lack of emotional quality. But his was not an intense nature, and probably no training could have made the didactic poet lyric or passionate. Sincerity and common sense were his predominating qualities, and he had the rare faculty of obedience to his own instincts. He first studied for the priesthood, but anything like mysticism was too repellent to his matter-of-fact mind. Then, as many of his family had been lawyers, he naturally turned toward that career. But the practice as taught him seemed senseless and arbitrary, its rational basis upon a logical theory only dawned upon him later. In spite of his literary tastes, there was something extremely mundane about the pleasure-loving bachelor, so fond of good eating and jovial café revels with Racine, Furetère, Ninon de l'Enclos, and other witty bohemians. With them he was much happier than in the more fastidious society of the Hôtel Rambouillet from which he retired after reading aloud a satiric poem not favorably received. Neither was he happy at court, in spite of the favor of Louis the Fourteenth, who entertained by his rough honesty gave him a pension of two thousand francs. Later, when appointed with Racine to write a history of the reign, that unfortunate history which was accidentally burned, we find him an unwilling follower on royal expeditions, his ungainly horsemanship the mock of high-bred courtiers, in fact, he was bourgeois through and through, and not at ease with the aristocrats. He was thrifty bourgeois, too, so often called miserly as well as malicious that it is pleasant to remember certain illustrations of his nobler side. The man who offered to resign his own pension, if that of an old disfavored Corneille might be continued, and when the latter was forced to sell his library, paid him its full value and then left him in lifelong possession, was generous if he did love to save sous. His was a fine independence, which felt his art too lofty for purchase, 
and would accept nothing from the booksellers. He had always wished to be a poet, feeble of body, asthmatic, and, in later life, deaf and almost deprived of voice, he found in writing all the charm of a brilliant and ingenious game. Then, too, he had something definite to say, as all his work consistently testifies. Neither rich nor poor, without family cares, he could give himself unreservedly to authorship. In 1660 he published a satire upon the vices of Paris, which inaugurated his great success. Seven satires appeared in 1666, and he afterward added five others. Their malicious wit, their novel form, the harmonious swing of the couplet rhyme, forced immediate attention. They held up contemporary literary weaknesses to scorn, and indulged in the most merciless personalities, sparing not even his own brother, the poet Gilles Beaulieu. All retorts upon himself the author bore with complacent superiority which forced his adversaries to feel worsted. From 1666 to 1774 most of the epistles were written, and also his best-known work, L'Art Poétique, The Art of Poetry. In the satires he had been destructive, but he was too practical to be negative. The Art of Poetry, modeled after Horace's work of that name, offers the theory of poetic composition. It is a work in four cantos of couplets, the first setting forth general rules of metrical composition, the second a dissertation upon different forms, ode, sonnet, pastoral, and others, the third treating tragedy, comedy, and epic poetry, and the last consisting of general reflections and advice to authors. Briefly stated, Boileau's desire was to establish literature upon a foundation of unchanging laws. Why did some works speedily die while others endure through the centuries? Because works akin to the eternal classics did not, like much contemporary writing, reflect the trivial and evanescent. They contained what is perennially true of humanity, and stated this in a simple, interesting, and reasonable way. Above all, Boileau demands truth in subject and the conscientious workmanship which finds the most suitable form of expression. To see a word at the end of a couplet only because it rhymes with the word above it, he finds inexcusable. Without a method resulting in unity, clearness, and proportion, writing is not literature. Later, in his Reflections upon Loginus, Boileau repeated and emphasized these views. His mock heroic poem, Les Lutherans, the reading desk, ridiculing clerical pettiness, was strong in realistic descriptions and was perhaps his most popular work. A modern poet's definition of poetry as the heat and height of sane emotion would have been unintelligible to Boileau. Deficient in imagination, he always saw life on its material side and was irritated by any display of emotion not reducible to logic. So his poetry is sensible clear argument in exquisitely careful meter. His great strength lay in a taste which recognized harmony and fitness instinctively. To us his quality is best translated by the dainty, perfect couplets of his imitator, Pope. His talent, essentially French in its love of effect and classification, has strewn the language with clever saws, and his works have been studied as authoritative models by generation after generation of students. But after all, it is less as a poet than as a critic, 
the lawgiver of the French Parnassus, that the world has always known Boileau. Before him the art of criticism had hardly existed. Authors have received indiscriminate praise or blame, usually founded upon interested motives or personal bias. But there had been little comparison with an acknowledged standard. This slashing reviewer in verse, as Saintsbury calls him, was a severe pedagogue, but his public did learn their lesson. He made mistakes, was neither broad-minded nor profound in attainments, was occasionally unjust, but he showed readers why they should praise or blame, taught them appreciation of his greater friends, Molière and Racine, and pointed out to authors what their purpose should be. With greater creative power seeking self-expression, he might have accomplished less in literary reform. ADVICE TO AUTHORS FROM THE ART OF POETRY There is a kind of writer pleased with sound, Whose fustian head with clouds is compassed round. No reason can disperse them with its light. Learn then to think, ere you pretend to write, As your ideas clear, or else obscure, The expression follows, perfect or impure. What we conceive with ease we can express. Words to the notions flow with readiness. Observe the language well in all you write, And swerve not from it in your loftiest flight. The smoothest verse and the exactest sense Displease if uncouth language give offense. A barbarous phrase no reader can approve, Nor bombast, noise, or affectation love. In short, without pure language, what you write can never yield us profit or delight. Take time for thinking, never work in haste, and value not yourself for writing fast. A rapid poem, with such fury writ, shows want of judgment, not abounding wit. More pleased we are to see a river lead his gentle streams along a flowery mead, than from high banks to hear loud torrents roar, with foamy waters on a muddy shore. Gently make haste, of labor not afraid. A hundred times consider what you've said. Polish, repolish, every color lay, and sometimes add, but oftener take away. Tis not enough when swarming faults are writ, That here and there are scattered sparks of wit. Each object must be fixed in the true place, And differing parts have corresponding grace. Till, by a curious art disposed, We find one perfect whole of all the pieces joined. Keep to your subject close in all you say, Nor for a sounding sentence ever stray. The public censure for your writings fear, And to yourself be critic most severe. Fantastic wits their darling follies love, But find you faithful friends that will reprove, That on your works may look with careful eyes, And of your faults be zealous enemies. Lay by an author's pride and vanity, And from a friend a flatterer descry, who seems to like, but means not what he says. Embrace true counsel, but suspect false.
false praise. A sycophant will everything admire. Each verse, each sentence, sets his soul on fire. All is divine. There's not a word amiss. He shakes with joy and weeps with tenderness. He overpowers you with his mighty praise. Truth never moves in these impetuous ways. A faithful friend is careful of your fame, and freely will your heedless errors blame. He cannot pardon a neglected line, but verse to rule and order will confine. Reprove of words the too affected sound. Here the sense flags, and your expressions bound. Your fancy tires, and your discourse grows vain. Your terms improper, make it just and plain. Thus tis a faithful friend will freedom use. But authors partial to their darling muse think to protect it, they have just pretense, and at your friendly counsel take offence. Said you of this, that the expression's flat, your servant, sir, you must excuse me that. He answers you, this word has here no grace. Pray leave it out. That, sir, is the properest place. This term I like not. Tis approved by all. Thus, resolute not from one fault to fall. If there's a symbol as to which you doubt, tis a sure reason not to blot it out. Yet still he says, you may his faults confute, and over him your power is absolute. But of his feigned humility take heed, tis bait to make you hear him read, and when he leaves you, happy in his muse, restless he runs some other to abuse. And often finds, for in our scribbling times no fool can lack a fool to praise his rhymes. The flattest work has here within the court met with some zealous ass for its support, and in all times a forward scribbling fop has found some greater fool to cry him up. The Pastoral, the Elegy, the Ode, and the Epigram from the art of poetry as a fair nymph when rising from her bed with sparkling diamonds dresses not her head but without gold or pearl or costly scents gathers from neighboring fields her ornaments such lovely in its dress but plain withal ought to appear a perfect pastoral its humble method nothing has of fierce but hates the rattling of lofty verse. There native beauty pleases and excites, and never with harsh sounds the ear affrights. But in this style a poet, often spent in rage, throws by his rural instrument, and vainly, when disordered thoughts abound, amidst the ecloge makes the trumpet sound. Pan flies alarmed into the neighboring woods, and frighted nymphs, dive down into the floods. Opposed to this, another, low in style, makes shepherds speak a language low and vile. His writings, flat and heavy, without sound, kissing the earth and creeping on the ground. You'd swear that Randall, in his rustic strains, again was quavering to the country swains, and changing, without care of sound or dress, 
Strephon and Phyllis into Tom and Bess. Twixt these extremities, tis hard to keep the right, for guides like Virgil read Theocrite. But their just writings, by the gods inspired, your constant pattern, practised and admired. By them alone you'll easily comprehend how poets without shame may condescend to sing of gardens, fields, of flowers and fruit, to stir up shepherds and to tune the flute. Of love's rewards, to tell the happy hour, Daphne a tree, Narcissus made a flower, and by what means the Ecloge yet has power to make the woods worthy a conqueror. This of their writings is the grace and flight, their risings lofty yet out of sight. The elegy that loves a mournful style with unbounded hair weeps at a funeral pile. It paints the lover's torments and delights. A mistress flatters, threatens, and invites. But well these raptures, if you'll make us see, you must know love as well as poetry. I hate those lukewarm authors whose forced fire in a cold style describes a hot desire. That sigh by rule, and raging in cold blood, their sluggish muse whip to an amorous mood. Their transports feigned appear but flat and vain. They always sigh, and always hug their chain. Adore their prisons and their sufferings bless, Make sense and reason quarrel as they please. T'was not of old in this affected tone That smooth Tibulus made his amorous moan. Nor Ovid, when, instructed from above, By nature's rule, he taught the art of love. The heart in elegies forms the discourse. The ode is bolder and has greater force, mounting to heaven in her ambitious flight, amongst the gods and heroes takes delight. Of Pisa's wrestlers tells the sinewy force, and sings the lusty conqueror's glorious course. To Simois's streams does fierce Achilles bring, and makes the Ganges bow to Britain's king. Sometimes she flies like an industrious bee, and robs the flowers by nature's chemistry, describes the shepherd's dances, feasts, and bliss, and boasts from Phyllis to surprise a kiss. When gently she resists with feigned remorse, that what she grants may seem to be by force. Her generous style at random oft will part, and by a brave disorder shows her art. Unlike those fearful poets whose cold rhyme in all their raptures keeps exactest time, that sing the illustrious hero's mighty praise, lean writers, by the terms of weeks and days, and dare not from the least circumstances part, but take all towns by strictest rules of art. Apollo drives these fops from his abode, and some have said that once the humorous god Resolving all such scribblers to confound, for the short sonnet ordered this strict bound, set rules for the just measurement and time, the easy running and alternate rhyme, but above all, those licenses denied which in these writings the lame sense supplied, forbade a useless line should find a place, or a repeated word appear with grace. A faultless sonnet, finished thus, would be worth tedious volumes of loose poetry, 
a hundred scribbling authors without ground believe they have this only phoenix found yet when the exactest scarce have two or three among whole tomes from faults and censure free the rest but little read regarded less are shoveled to the pastry from the press closing the sense within the measured time tis hard to find the reason to the rhyme the epigram with little art composed is one good sentence in a distich closed these points that by italians first were prized our ancient authors knew not or despised the vulgar dazzled with their glaring light to their false pleasures quickly they invite but public favor so increased their pride they overwhelmed parnassus with their tide the madrigal at first was overcome and the proud sonnet fell by the same doom with these grave tragedy adorned her flights and mournful elegy her funeral rites a hero never failed them on the stage without his point a lover durst not rage the amorous shepherds took more care to prove true to his point than faithful to their love each word like janus had a double face and prose as well as verse allowed it place the lawyer with conceits adorned his speech the parson without quibbling could not preach at last affronted reason looked about and from all serious matters shut them out declared that none should use them without shame except a scattering in the epigram provided that by art and in due time they turned upon the thought and not the rhyme thus in all parts disorders did abate yet quibblers in the court have leave to prate insipid jesters and unpleasant fools a corporation of dull punning drolls tis not but that sometimes a dexterous muse may with advantage a turned sense abuse and on a word may trifle with address but above all avoid the fond excess and think not when your verse and sense are lame with a dull point to tag your epigram to moliere from the satires unequalled genius whose warm fancy knows no rhyming labor no poetic throes to whom apollo has unlocked his store whose coin is struck from pure parnassian ore thou dexterous master teach thy skill to me and tell me moliere how to rhyme like thee you never falter when the close comes round or leave the substance to preserve the sound you never wander after words that fly for all the words you need before you lie but i who smarting for my sins of late with itch of rhyme am visited by fate expend on air my unavailing force and hunting sounds am sweated like a horse in vain i often muse from dawn till night when i mean black my stubborn verse says white if i should paint a coxcomb's flippant mien i scarcely can forbear to name the dean if asked to tell the strains that purest flow my heart says virgil but by pen quinol in short whatever i attempt to say mischance conducts me quite the other way 
at times fatigued and fretted with the pain when every effort for relief is vain the fruitless chase i peevishly give o'er and swear a thousand times to write no more but after thousand vows perhaps by chance before my careless eyes the couplet stands then with new force my flame bursts out again pleased i resume the paper and the pen and all my anger and my oaths forgot i calmly muse and resolutely blot yet if my eager hand in haste to rhyme should tack an empty couplet at a time great names who do the same i might adduce nay some who keep such hirelings for their use need blooming phyllis be described in prose by any lover who has seen a rose who can forget heaven's masterpiece her eye wherein within call the loves and graces lie who can forget her smile devoid of art her heavenly sweetness and her frozen heart how easy thus for ever to compound and ring new changes on recurring sound how easy with a reasonable store of useful epithets repeated o'er verb substantive and pronoun to transpose and in tinkling metre hitch dull prose but i who tremble o'er each word i use and all that do not aid the sense refuse who cannot bear those phrases out of place which rhymers stuff into a vacant space ponder my scrupulous verses o'er and o'er and when i write five words oft blot out four plague on the fool who taught us to confine the swelling thought within a measured line who first in narrow thaldrum fancy pent and chained in rhyme each pinion sentiment without this toil contentment's soothing balm might lull my languid soul in listless calm like the smooth prebend how i might recline and loiter life in mirth and song and wine roused by no labor with no care oppressed pass all my nights in sleep my days in rest my passions and desires obey the rein no mad ambition fires my temperate vein the schemes of busy greatness i decline nor kneel in palaces at fortune's shrine in short my life had been supremely blessed if envious rhyme had not disturbed my rest but since this freakish fiend began to roll his idle vapours o'er my troubled soul since first i longed in polished verse to please and wrote with labour to be read with ease nailed to my chair day after day i pore on what i write and what i wrote before retouch each line each epithet review or burn the paper and begin anew while thus my labours lengthen into years I envy all the race of sonneteers. Hail, happy Scudra, whose prolific brain brings forth a monthly volume without pain. What thought thy works, offending every rule, proclaim their author an insipid fool? Still have they found, whate'er the critic says, traitors to buy, and emptier fools to praise. And, truly, if in rhymes the couplets close, what should it matter that the rest is prose who stickles now for antiquated saws or cramps his verse with pedantic laws the fool can welcome every word he meets with placid joy contemplating his feats and while each stanza swells his wondering breast admires them all 
yet thinks the last the best but towering genius hopeless to attain that unknown summit which he pants to gain displeased himself enchanting all beside scorns each past effort that his strength supplied and filling every reader with delight repents the hour when he began to write to you who know how justly i complain to you i turn for medicine to my pain grant me your talent impart your store or teach me moliere how to rhyme no more end of section twenty seven